The past week has been shocking. Gilroy, California. Brownsville in Brooklyn. El Paso, Texas. Dayton, Ohio. We've all got to do our part to end gun violence in America. That starts by learning about the problem and the solutions. Over the past year and a half, I've devoted myself to this cause. If you agree that more people need to learn about the science of gun violence and what we can do about it, please share this podcast with them. These are important conversations we all need to hear. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Have you ever been pulled over for a traffic violation? Oh, once in probably my early 20s. You probably probably didn't register that much on you or make a big impact, but every traffic stop I made, I approached every traffic stop as if the guy in the car could shoot me. Mark Jones is a senior policy advisor to the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence. He started his career in law enforcement as a patrol officer in Illinois. I was trained to do this. I was trained to walk up to the car, press down on the trunk to make sure the trunk's closed. Because if the trunk's not closed, it could pop open suddenly and a guy could get out and shoot you. Then you look in the back window and if it's at night, you put your flashlight and you look around. But you never get next to the driver's door. You stand a little behind the driver's door. Make it hard for the driver to turn around and shoot you. What Mark's describing isn't just, quote, best practice on the job. It's a way of life. We have 300 million guns, more or less. We don't know who has them. We have to assume, as a law enforcement officer in this country, that every civilian you, you approach is armed. On this episode, we're going to look at lives in blue, how living and working around guns affects law enforcement officers physically and mentally, both on the job and outside of it. What it's like to live with the possibility of a shooting right around the corner and with the memory of past shootings behind you. Mark Jones understands why police are trained this way, to think that every civilian they meet could have a gun. The risks, he says, are real. But he also says the longer he stayed in the force and rose through the ranks, the better he understood where the risk was really coming from. As a newly minted patrol officer, though, Mark was oblivious to all of this. He just really liked guns. As a young man, I was very much into firearms and tactics and SWAT team and, and all that stuff. And I learned it. I internalized it. And I sought it and got more and got better. Mark says this is a common experience for young officers. Mostly when you see this sort of fervent gun loving, it's coming from young men. There's a percentage that they get into it. They become firearms instructors and tactics instructors. This is what I was. I'm described, basically described, describing myself to you. And at some point through my enforcement work I was doing, the supervision I ended up getting into and the, the professional path I've been on has let me see, I think, the truth of the firearms industry. But a lot of these folks don't get there. They stay in, in local police agencies for their entire careers. They don't get out of that. Their, their livelihood comes from this. Their friends, their, their socializing comes from these relationships that build around hunting, firearms use, target shooting. So when you were a young officer, why were you so into guns and tactics and SWAT teams and all of that? I mean, how did it make you feel? Powerful, strong, um, handsome, charismatic. 
Mark says that his motivation for joining law enforcement was related to being neglected and feeling powerless as a child. A lot of me leaning towards the law enforcement stuff was the realization of a sort of a lifelong desire to have agency in my life. And while he's hesitant to project too much of his own personal experience onto colleagues, he says there are parallels in terms of what joining law enforcement did for them. I went from being nobody in, in the society I came from to being suddenly a public figure with authority and granted responsibility by the state. I mean, this was all new for me. I don't think that part of it is that uncommon. Young cops get a lot of approval for being good with a gun. Firearms are seen as an integral part of, of police work in America. You're rewarded if you're the best shot in your class or if you do it enough times, like you get a perfect score five times and you get a, a letter from your agency head where I came from that said, great job, Agent Jones, you shot perfect five times in a row. And so we're, you know, we're gonna give you a hundred dollar bonus and put this in your permanent record kind of thing. Mark rose in the ranks. He took on leadership roles with various federal agencies, and he went through a similar transformation that many in law enforcement leadership do. They see it, the toll that gun violence takes on their communities, and not just in, you know, the sort of the bodies falling on the, the dead and the wounded, but the cost of business, the cost of, the, of medical care, the, all of the things that we are starting finally to realize that go into the cost of gun violence. These chiefs see this. They see its impact on their, on their bottom line. As his views on gun policy changed, Mark began making a connection between the number of firearms on the streets and the risk to police officers' lives, risks that included being shot by a civilian or shooting one. These connections, it turns out, are much harder for those of us outside of law enforcement to make. Here's Franklin Zimring. He's a criminologist and law professor at UC Berkeley. There really are a whole series of rather gentle controls that 80% of the population supports that when you add them all up would have a modest at best reduction in the death rate attributable to the use of firearms and violence. That is to say, everything that we're willing to do even if the NRA didn't exist, uh, is at best a 10% reduction in additional death rate because of the instrumentality effect of all the guns that are out there that get used. Because guns are such lethal weapons. Then there are the things that could cut our homicide rate in half, uh, but those involve very substantial reductions in the availability of concealable firearms. According to Frank, what we should be focusing our efforts on is reducing the availability of handguns, and more specifically, of concealable firearms. Frank says that in the U.S., we like to talk about the ready availability of guns and prevalence of gun violence. And then we have a separate conversation about police killings, about Black Lives Matter, and about how blue lives also matter. These two universes of discourse take place almost as if they're on separate planets. When in reality, they are very much linked. Police in the United States kill between 1,000 and 1,100 civilians a year, which is about 
25 times as much uh, killing of civilians as in other developed countries. Why is that? In the U.S., there's a high rate of civilians killed by law enforcement officers, in part because cops are more preemptive. And the reason for that, Frank says, is that in the U.S., a combination of civilian gun ownership and concealed guns in public place the lives of police officers at risk. Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter are in some respects two sides of the same issue, and both are very much linked to the prevalence of guns in America. I asked Frank why rank-and-file police officers aren't more outspoken advocates in favor of gun regulation, given the very real threat to their own lives. Frank says it's often because there are misconceptions about where police officers are highest risk and who's the biggest threat. They're thinking uh, high-crime neighborhoods, repetitive, violent offenders, robbers and street gangs. They're not thinking... 52-year-old men fighting with their wives or failing to take their antidepressants and lithium. According to Frank, some police officers might hesitate to support gun regulations because they don't believe criminals will obey the law. But Frank points out that it's typically not criminals who are shooting at police. If you look at the data on gun violence against police officers, you'll see that the assaults don't follow incidents of crime. Instead, they follow gun ownership. There is an ideological uh, blockage for a lot of in-service rank-and-file police officers because they think that the risks of assaults against police with guns is criminality instead of Uncle Eddie off his meds or violently pressured domestic disturbance cases where loaded guns are present. Similarly, civilian killings by police often involve what are called disputes or disturbances, often domestic arguments. Those are about 25% of all the circumstances that produce killings of civilians because what they are is the combination of unhinged people and firearms in their possessions. David Swedler is an epidemiologist and statistician who studies how people get injured on the job. In 2015, he published a paper on the relationship between gun ownership and assaults against police across the United States. And in the paper, we made maps of gun ownership and officer homicide rates. And if you look at it, the two maps, there's a lot of states that line up in the same category in each, high gun ownership and high officer homicides, low gun ownership and low officer homicides. According to Dave's research, the states with the most guns had a three times higher rate of officer homicides than the states with the fewest guns. And like Frank, Dave found something interesting about when these homicides occur. The, according to the Law Enforcement Officer Memorial page in 2017, and this has been consistent through previous years, domestic disturbance is the most common situation that precedes an officer homicide by counts. And in states where there are high rates of gun ownership, domestic disturbance calls are even more dangerous to police officers. Here's how Dave explains it. Officers are showing up to these calls in every single state. An officer in a state with more homes with civilian gun ownership will more often enter homes where a gun is present. These officers in these high gun states 
are more often entering armed domestic disturbance situations than their uh, counterparts in low-gun states. And so the officer becomes at risk for what's called a corollary homicide. Corollary homicide is someone who's not the primary victim of the intimate partner violence, but a secondary victim of the main abuser. When you are sending an officer on a call where shots have been fired, uh, alcohol is involved, people are armed, they know they're going into a high-risk situation. That's retired police chief Richard Myers, who's now the executive director of the major city's chiefs association. Richard says police officers can be trained to identify and minimize risks in potentially dangerous situations. And they're very good at it. However, the real risk is when everything seems to be going great and suddenly out of the blue, they missed some cues that someone is turning from a nice person to interact with to a deadly person that they're interacting with. And this is why domestic violence, intimate partner violence situations are so risky, if not lethal. When two people that have a significant relationship uh, engage in conflict, emotions are absolutely at their peak. It can be a highly traumatic experience emotionally for both parties. And then you inject into the middle of that a third party who neither individual trusts, likes, or really wants to be there at the time. We train officers to be very mindful that these domestic situations can look very uh, innocent on the surface, but deep down could involve uh, extreme violence. But if training is supposed to help officers in situations like these, it should include more than how to properly use a handgun or other traditional aspects of policing. It should include training on relationship building and human-to-human interaction. Policing is a relational business. It really is. In other words, all policing is done through relationships, and strong relationships equal less risk of violence for everyone involved. Fear of the police or fear by the police both end up with potentially really dangerous circumstances. And if people are afraid of the police and they're armed, they're going to be more likely to jump to using force if they have an interaction with an officer and they feel frightened about it. Likewise, if cops are so afraid to get out of their car and go on a call or go on a foot patrol in a downtown area or make a traffic stop, that worries me equally as much. In addition to the prevalence of firearms, which often fuels both fear of the police and fear by the police, there's another dynamic at play. The militarization of the civilian population has caused the militarization of the police population, and it's not the other way around. This is Mark Jones again. Technology is developed for the military. They get implemented by the military. Once the company that's made them has squeezed as much money out of that military application as they think they can, they figure out a way to civilianize the technology, and they push it to the civilian population. Police officers are then forced to up the ante to keep up with what they may encounter on the streets. It's a really disturbing trend, and you're seeing it all over the place, the idea that we have armed the civilian population at the equivalent level of the police population, and now we're seeing those arms being turned on the cops. 
And while mass shootings with military-style weapons still represent a small percentage of gun violence in America, they're still a phenomenon police officers have become the first responders to, exposing them to a different kind of risk. You know, in the aftermath of September 11th and Columbine, you actually have a big shift in um, police training. Jennifer Carlson is a sociologist at the University of Arizona. She's been interviewing police officers across the country about their use of guns as part of her research for an upcoming book. So the sort of, you know, way to go about an active shooting when Columbine happened was to contain and wait. So you arrive on the scene, you secure the perimeter, and then you wait for SWAT to arrive, and then SWAT goes in and they deal with the threat. And that's something that came up in my interviews where police would talk about, you know, now we're trained to step over the dead bodies, to step over the victims to run to the threat. And that's, you know, that's really hard to do because you want to stop and help someone, um, but that's not how we're trained now. We have to run to the threat. So you don't wait for SWAT. You form, you form a team to go in and deal with the active gunfire. Jennifer says these changes in training, expectations of what the job is, also influence how police think about carrying their guns off duty. That, I think, has also sort of changed their relationship with their own personal firearm because it's no longer just about work. You know, you take off the badge, you take off the gun, you go home. Now it's kind of this sense of, you know, an an active shooting could happen at any time, any place, and so you should be armed. As the demands of the job have changed, along with the weapons law enforcement officers carry, so have the risks. Risk goes beyond physical injuries, and they include a real toll on mental health that some officers are only now slowly beginning to speak about. Jeff McGill is the co-founder of Blue Help. Blue Help is an education and advocacy organization that tries to reduce mental health stigma and raise awareness about suicide and mental illness in the law enforcement community. Jeff conducts trainings for law enforcement units all over the country, During these trainings, he often tells a story of a shooting incident his partner Steve was involved in and the psychological aftermath they both endured. For me and him, we had been through everything together. So uh, we had worked together as partners for about 10 or 12 years. And so, you know, it's something that changes. It changes who you are and how you think about things. Jeff and his partner Steve were serving a search warrant with the U.S. Marshals Service. They arrived at the address. They set up a perimeter around the home and waited for the search warrant to arrive. After holding a perimeter for about two hours, uh, the suspect came out the front door. He didn't have anything in his hands at that point. The suspect walked to the front yard, then went back inside. He was doing a little recon. Immediately after going in the house, he kicked the door back open with his foot and he came out the front door uh, with two guns, one in each hand uh, and firing. Steve was positioned at the front of the house. He was the only cop the suspect could see from the front door, so he aimed directly at him. Jeff was in the opposite corner near the rear of the house and couldn't see the suspect, but he had a clear view of Steve. In the less than 10 seconds that this shooting occurred, there were 60 shots fired. And the way I describe it to people, uh, you know, head wounds bleed a lot to begin with. Uh, But the way I describe it is it looks like somebody turned on the kitchen faucet full blast. uh, And there was a trail of blood uh, that came out of his face and he was able to move to cover from there. As he was moving to cover, he took two more rounds in the right leg And strange things start happening to your mind during high-stress situations like this. 
Eventually, the shooter was subdued, and Steve was taken to the hospital by a SWAT medic. Jeff followed right behind them. As cops, we're taught and we're prepared to get shot. We, we know that if we get shot, this is how we're going to react. And we always think through this process of what if. And if this occurs, then we're going to do this. So I had worked my way through this process for myself. Never once had I ever considered having to stand over my friend in an ER, hold his hand, and take what could be his last words. Around that time, Jeff says, his agency had lost three other officers with gunshot wounds to the head in a very short stretch of time. None of them had survived. All of this was playing in the back of Jeff's mind as the nursing staff started handing him Steve's personal items. They hand me his wedding ring, they hand me his wallet, and you know, none of this had ever crossed my mind as to what would occur if this was ever to go on. Steve was flown from the emergency room to a trauma center. Jeff wasn't allowed on the helicopter, so he followed in his car, driving, lights and sirens ablaze, through traffic. He uh, is uh, treated, stabilized. Uh, the trauma surgeon works their magic. He is put into a uh, critical care unit for an extended period of time. At 5 a.m. the morning after the incident, Jeff decided to drive the hour and a half back home, shower and rest. But soon after he got back, Steve's brother called him, telling him Steve was asking for him. So Jeff rushed back to the hospital. On the drive... I start sweating profusely. I start breathing really heavily. And I have no idea what's going on. I'm fairly well fit. My resting heart rate's usually about 50 or 60 beats a minute. And I'm sitting in a car pushing 140 beats a minute and can't stop sweating and can't stop breathing heavy and no idea. Jeff was having a panic attack. Never had a panic attack before. Didn't know what it was. Uh, but I knew that I was lacking control. And it was this lack of control that made things especially stressful for Jeff. It's one of the things that we teach officers from day one is you always have to be in control of the situation. It doesn't matter what the situation is. And so not having control and not having current information as to how my partner was doing and whether or not he would live uh, was a tremendously stressful event for me. As time went along and Steve recovered physically, it was clear his mental health had taken a big hit. Uh, he had his jaw broken in three places, so his jaw was wired shut. That resulted in a trach uh, being required. The cleaning of the trach, uh, insert and removal of the trach, may trigger a response to him. Different things would cause him to have flashes. Jeff says that what weighed so heavily on Steve was the effect his injury had on his family and colleagues like Jeff. He was the only officer within the agency that we were at to survive a gunshot battle. Um, and, you know, we had officers within the agency who couldn't go visit him in the hospital because they couldn't uh, face that. They couldn't face their own mortality. You know, his brothers were both in law enforcement, working the streets. Uh, one took a transfer to uh, get off the street initially. One left law enforcement completely. It was a, a life-changing event for many more people than just him. About 11 months after the incident, after multiple surgeries, as well as psychological and psychiatric treatment, Steve went back to work in his old unit. The fact that he was able to come back after such a traumatic injury and get back into the game says huge things about his character and his 
uh, level of persistence, not only to physically recover, but to mentally bring yourself around. Jeff is really clear when he speaks at trainings that Steve didn't do that on his own. And I tell people all the time, we have officers who have their partners killed in the line of duty. And the survivor's guilt that's associated with that is tremendous for many of these officers. You know, why wasn't it me? Uh, why, why couldn't I protect them? Why didn't I make sure they get home? Jeff says it's unfortunately not uncommon for that guilt to lead many officers to quit the job or even to take their own life. I dealt with that level of guilt, and I can understand and relate to the idea that had my partner not survived, I know my career would have been over. I would have turned in my badge and gun and been done. The big problem, Jeff says, about mental illness is that cops don't talk about it. Things are changing, he says, but very slowly. I came up in a time where the standard was suck it up and drive on. You know, it doesn't matter what the incident was. Uh, you responded to a, the death of a baby or, or sudden infant death syndrome, uh, or you responded to a massive motor vehicle accident where you have multiple bodies. It was, okay, that's great. Go write your report and go on to the next call. You might be able to stand one, two, three, but ultimately that stuff builds up over time. And when you're talking about uh, traumatic stressors, when, when you're having those build up over a, a cumulative time of 20, 25 years within an agency or within a career, you know, how are you dealing with that? Jeff told me back in his day, the way officers in his unit handled the stress was through what he called choir practice. Everybody would meet and they get off shift uh, and have a few drinks. And, you know, I, I'm not a fan of drinking to solve the problem. However, looking back, the benefits of those informal gatherings are clear. It was peer support and there was debriefing time. Um, you know, you would sit around with your fellow officers and talk about the calls you went on. And you wouldn't necessarily talk about the feelings associated with it, but you could get some of those out by explaining what you saw and what you did. But Jeff says that aside from choir practice, it wasn't really part of the culture for officers to talk about what was going on with them, their feelings, or the trauma. Again, a lot of it goes back to the way officers are trained to think about their job and their identities as police officers. If I'm supposed to be in control of the situation, and now all of a sudden I can't deal, I can't even control my own emotions associated with the death of a child, then can I be trusted to do anything else? Jeff's description of choir practice sounded familiar to me. In medicine, we call it liver rounds. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Once a week where we go to the local bar. And, um, and there's a similar sort of language also about, are you in control of the situation? Um, how do we change that culture? Uh, I can't speak to the medical side, but I will speak to law enforcement. Jeff says the problem is that the system doesn't give the same weight to psychological trauma as it does to a physical injury. If I went and told the chief, hey, I got shot in the line of duty and I'm physically injured, I'm going to get a medal and I'm going to get days off and the agency's going to take care of me and everybody's going to rally around me to fix my physical injury. If we're talking about a mental injury, it's not like that. Police agencies, Jeff believes, need to start recognizing traumatic stress as a line-of-duty injury. And they need to start talking about it. The earlier, the better. We know that trauma and uh, what officers see can change the way the, the brain works. 
all of these things are physical changes that are occurring in the brain as a result of trauma, but we don't want to talk about it. And so as it's becoming more culturally accepted and, and we're seeing some changes, we're seeing police chiefs step up and go, hey, I had this problem when I was a young officer uh, and being willing to speak about this and how they got to that point. Jeff says we need to talk about it early on so that when the old guard, people of his generation, retire, the young officers coming up will be in better shape. They will have gotten mental health uh, information earlier, and they will have known about it from day one of the academy, and they'll have it reinforced throughout their entire career that they need to watch out for it, they need to prepare for it, uh, they need to go to checkups, and so that will become the norm within the culture. Another important thing to change the culture, Jeff says, is to make getting help normal. You don't go to see the dentist only when you have a toothache. We all go to see the dentist every six months, get our teeth cleaned, whether we need them or not. That's the norm. Why aren't we doing this with psychologists or peer supporters or the chaplain or anybody else that is perfect for you? Mental health professionals should be better prepared to care for police officers. He'd like to see them go out on patrol cars, for example, so they see what police officers see. Because cops don't trust people. We are a very closed community and we trust our own. Uh, because we count on each other to bring each other home every day. It's an issue of life or death for us. And so if you're an outsider, you're going to have to establish some kind of rapport with us, and you're going to have to show us you understand where we are coming from and what our culture is uh, before we're willing to talk to you. Jeff points out there's a shortage of cops all across the country, so many police departments recognize it's in their interest to take responsibility for the mental health of their officers. They realize they need to have a plan to help them through recovery and get them back to work. They're not replaceable. There are simply not enough applicants. But there's another reason law enforcement leadership sees it as a necessity. All of us who have been in policing have had colleagues go down uh, at their own hand. Uh, I know as a chief, I've had to bury an officer or two for suicide. and. It creates uh, an empty spot in your soul. The suicide rate among police officers is well above the general population. An officer is twice as likely to die by suicide as to be shot in the line of duty. In just the last two months, five NYPD officers have died by suicide. We try to tell people that you know, every time you're dealing with a traumatic event or a, a significant stressor, you're picking up a rock and putting it in your bag. And how many of those rocks do you think you can carry? Certainly, you can carry some. Most of us can. And some of us can carry more than others. But everybody breaks at a certain point. In our next few episodes, we're going to shift from urban gun violence to mental illness. Gun violence is a mental illness problem, but not in the way most people think. The number one cause of gun violence in this country suicides. About two-thirds of gun violence deaths are suicides. So we're going to spend the next few episodes talking about the links between mental illness and gun violence, starting off with some level setting. There are lots of misconceptions about suicide. Is it preventable? Is it impulsive? Who's at risk? Is everyone with a mental illness at risk? That's next time on In Sickness and In Health. Today's episode of In Sickness and In Health was produced by Virginia Laura and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, 
please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and In Health.